This is Commerce Shenanigans, episode 766, a conversation with Tom Brevoort. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 766. It's our conversation with Tom Brevoort, or rather, it's the second conversation I've had with Tom Brevoort, as I was lucky enough to uh, have Tom on the show uh, way back when, about four years ago, uh, in 2016, where we, if you want to go back and listen to that, you'll hear us talk about his kind of intro to comics, how he first became interested in comics, uh, through his dad. Um, his dad used to smoke a lot, so he used to go to a you know store, pick up some smokes, needles pick up some comics for for tom so we get we get into that how we kind of broke into the industry so if you're interested uh kind of the the early um the early times for Tom Revert, uh, I would recommend p- checking out that episode. Uh, that is episode 354. Again, that's from March 14th, 2016, so it's about four, four years later, uh, give or take a couple weeks, and uh, now I have Tom back on the show. Um, so before I jump into the episode, I want to thank D'Lo Tempio for some uh, questions from the Marvel Masterworks forum that he had uh, kind of sent in uh, that we tried to integrate. I found that I had a lot of things I wanted to chat with Tom with anyway, because he's just such a great storyteller and has been around for so long that has you know he's been through so many different sea changes at marvel and in the industry so i just wanted to pick his brain about some things we talk about um some of the current issues that are happening at marvel in terms of uh, the COVID 19 outbreak and pandemic um and then we you know kind of roll back and we talk about you know the halcyon days of dealing with the clone saga and having uh you know multiple um editors-in-chief at marvel as opposed to one big editor-in-chief and kind of working through what that was like um so you can email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, rate the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Um, there was some connection issues that we ended up having, but I, I, I wanted to get this out, episode out relatively quickly after we recorded it, just because it is timely um, in terms of some of the things that we talk about uh, with regards to the pandemic. So um, there was some of the stuff I could have nipped and talked a little bit. I kind of left it in. There's some issues where sometimes the the audio connection will start to falter and it will kind of elongate some of his sentences and be a little sketchy and then it will jump right back in and it happens a couple times here and there um but for the most part it's pretty solid and again i didn't want to kind of sacrifice any minute because i think it's a great conversation and uh, as i said i'm always a fan of uh, listening to tom he's just so interesting to me and again he's been around so long and and experienced so much in the industry that i think he's just a fascinating guy and if you ever decided to write a book i would be right there ready to uh, pick up a a copy because uh, I think you have a lot of interesting and, and fantastic stories to tell. Anyways, without further ado, let's jump right into the episode where I sit down with Tom Brevoort. Tom, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm hoping that you're keeping safe and healthy. Uh, so far, so good. <laughs> it's it's uh, it's been a oh. 18 at this point so it's been a while for sure now what is it like like how has production or how has everything changed now that everyone's kind of working remotely or i mean obviously the a lot of the writers and artists were already doing that but obviously editorially how has that changed how you guys operate 
we're not saying so. It's a lot more difficult. Um, you know, additionally, we're having to kind of you know remote into our computers at work with, that have all the files and stuff on them that we need to you know actually do the job, which which makes things a little more uh, tenuous and tentative. Um, and you you don't and you don't have the ease of communication where you might walk down a hall to somebody else's office to have a conversation or to figure something out or to get a question answered or whatnot, and it's a little more difficult now to have those interactions because everybody's everybody's not in this and you know, even the people you're immediately working with my assistants and associate editors who are typically in the same room with me are now scattered all over the place uh, and we're having to do you know our conversations through slack or through zoom or, or you know through some other set of channels that works all right but is not as good as having everybody in the same place no, for sure. Obviously, it's yeah, it's disruptive to a, to a lot of people and uh, their usual flow and how that works. And uh, yeah, again, if you guys are usually working in the same room, it's obviously going to be an interesting disconnect when that's not your operating procedure for a little while. Yeah, well, again, as you said earlier, though, the, the, the most critical thing is for most of our creative staff, uh, you know, this is not that different from what they were doing anyway. You know, our, our creators, our writers and artists and colorists and letterers were already scattered all over the place and working remotely with one. It's not that big of a change other than dealing with the rest of what comes with, uh, you know, these lockdown situations. For sure. And obviously everything, you know, seems to change not so much on a day-to-day basis, but sometimes on an hour-by-hour basis. So obviously things are always in flux. So I'm curious, like, with, you know, producing the actual work, uh, now that we're not, te- you know, as of right now, we're not really getting new comics being delivered either digitally or physically. So are you guys kind of stockpiling the, the kind of the pipeline or getting ahead of, you know, where you normally would be in terms of deadlines? Or how do you guys kind of approach that? Uh, so far, at least, we've been... Uh, you know, proceeding as though nothing had changed. So for the last, you know, two and a half weeks and into this week, three weeks, you know, we've been completing books and they've been uploaded uh, to the to the printer. Um, uh, you know, just like we would in any other other week. Um, you know, exactly when all of those books will be printed and shipped and and uh, you know available. Uh, you know, is 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 kind of anybody's guess at this point. Uh, you know, we're still in the process of figuring all of that out, given the fact that the the, the landscape seems to be changing on a day to day basis. Uh, but so far, at least, we've we've just been producing, uh, you know, the material as though nothing had happened. So same same amount of books, uh, same you know same deadlines, same production schedule. Uh, you know, there'll be books that that go to press theoretically by the end of this week uh and you'll read them at some point whether that's you know in in three or four weeks as would be normal or whether that is in three or four months because we are in extraordinary circumstances now this is obviously like a kind of a high level question and perhaps not one you could answer but you know if it goes on longer and diamond still is kind of shut down and there's nowhere kind of for those new books to go uh, at what point do you think you guys would would you just kind of continue and just have this uh, all this material ready to go, or at what point do you guys kind of say we have to slow down production because we just don't have anywhere for it to go anymore? I I I don't want to even speculate on this. Honestly, sure. it's it's there are too many factors, and obviously, I'm just one small piece of a much larger Marvel machine that and brain trust that is figuring all of this stuff out. Uh, you 
you know, so anything that I tell you, Frank, could be wrong by tomorrow <laughs> as situations change. You know, we had a situation yesterday. It was different than what we were dealing with today. Tomorrow will be different. Um, you know, so far, uh, you know, we've proven to be relatively adaptable to the to the circumstances. Uh, you know, we're dedicated to making the, the books and getting the books out to the audience uh, that's that's hungry for them, that, that wants them. But um, the specifics of it are all so fluid at this point that I can't really tell you anything con- concretely, nor can I speak for, you know, the, the, you know, the people in the higher up at, at Marvel or, or Disney and, you know, how, how this will affect what we're doing as the situation goes on longer and longer. Um, I just, I couldn't even, you know, in good conscience speculate on that stuff. So I'm going to ask you two really sensitive questions. And again, you might have the exact same answer and that's okay. The first is, um, when diamond (laughs) announced that they were going to be be the least informative (laughs) podcast ever. Yeah. When, when diamond announced they were not going to be, you know, shipping to stores, did you feel that that was the right move? Because I think it, I think it was like the, why put people at risk. But a lot of people seem to be, you know, not feeling that same way. So, what was your personal reaction when they when Diamond made their announcement? Uh, you know, uh, again, I, it was uh, you know I, I can't I can't speak to the internals of what's going on with Diamond or any of that. Um, I was not terribly surprised that we got to a point where they could not ship books because. Uh, you know, they use people to do that in warehouses and, you know, driving trucks and and, and doing all of this labor. And, uh, you know, if everybody is having to one degree or another to, you know, sequester in place, you don't really have the people anymore. Um, so, uh, you know, like I say, I wasn't at all shocked that it got to that point. Um you know, you could sort of imagine that sooner or later you were going to hit that wall in the same sort of way that, you know, comic shops are really having a hard time right now because they're retail outlets. Their business is people come to the store and buy the goods, and now they can't have people come to the store anymore. And, uh, you know, again, the more adaptable and fluid of them are finding ways to do home delivery or curbside pickup or doing gift certificates or doing orders. Difficult, uh, obviously, for everybody that's not in our field. Um, there, there are plenty of other people who have it worse than we do right now, uh, or some of us at least. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, th- uh, but you know, we'll, 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 we'll see what happens as, as things progress. For sure. And then my second sensitive question, um, which again, I don't expect you to maybe have an answer to, is that we now know that as of this week. Um, you know, obviously we weren't getting the physical books, but we're also not getting the digital books. And I think that was probably the right call. Uh, because again, I think that otherwise, what does that mean for your brick and mortar that, you know, that people are going to be able to get comics and without going to the stores and just get digital. So I think that was probably the right move. I don't know if I'm in the minority or not feeling that way. Uh, but I appreciated that move that Marvel took. What was, you know, were you in, in any of those conversations or what, do you have any opinions on that? Or would we rather just stay away from that? Again, there's 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 not much I can tell you definitively in terms of what's 
what's going to happen going forward. What we're going to do, what DC is going to do, what Image is going to do, what you know, what everybody individually and collectively is going to do in this situation, because the industry has not faced anything like this in its history. Um, so, uh, yeah, and again, a- any opinion that I have here would just be me spouting off, and you know, there's a lot of other people at Marvel. Uh, beyond myself, uh, far smarter, better people than me, uh, who are working to figure out what what the best way you know there is to continue to get our material to the audience and continue that uh, you know that, that that sort of soap operaistic lifestyle of following the stories and following the characters without doing last thing damn to our partners on the on the retail front line. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a difficult thing for everybody. Um, you know, there's no good answers that are going to satisfy 100% of anybody, and we're grappling with it literally on a day-to-day basis. But hopefully our, our smart people will come up with a solution that will make the most amount of people as happy as they can be, given that we're in the middle of a huge pandemic and we you know, have, have uh, far, far larger uh, problems to be grappling with. Absolutely. Now, let me ask a question. So you're obviously, you know, you, you've mentioned before in different interviews and pre- previously with us that you still go to the comic shop usually on Wednesdays, obviously when shops are open and when you're actually able to do that. What, yes. what, what books are you most bummed about not being able to pick up during this period? Um, well, this is this Wednesday. Tomorrow uh, will be the third Wednesday in a row that I have not gone to a shop. And that is the longest consecutive streak I've had of not going to a shop in, in, in the course of a week. It's probably since I started driving. You know, maybe you go back to, you know, the days when I was in, you know, whatever, junior high school and could not drive and maybe I would have not bought comics for, for three weeks. Um, although even that's kind of sketchy given that comics were a lot more uh, you know, prevalent and out in the world in the in the early 80s when I was doing that. So even if I couldn't get to a comic shop, it's likely that I or my family would go to a uh, you know a strip mall or a, a or a, a marketplace or something that would have a a 7-Eleven or a drugstore or a candy store or something that would sell comics. Um, so this is the longest stretch I've gone <laughs> without new books. You know, come coming in, uh, and I and I put a little asterisk with that because. When this started, uh, you know, I ordered the, the first week's books, which I think were the March 18th books, hmm. uh, mail order from from Midtown. Midtown, uh, you know, is the shop that I use in, in uh, Manhattan right now. Uh, and typically I'll stop in there in the morning on my way to Marvel on, on Wednesday, buy the books in the morning and then, you know, go do the job. Um, but I wasn't going to be able to get in. I ordered, uh, you know, mail order from them on the, the, the 318 books and then the 325 books. Uh, and the 318 books showed up towards the end of last week. So I have gotten <laughs> new comics <laughs> uh, you know, during this period. I just haven't actually gone to a store to, to get them. Um, you know, uh, and, and it's like you're asking me, like, what's the stuff I'm most bummed about not getting? And that's hard because for all that I'm there and because I'm there every week, like I have a sense of what's coming out in general, but I really don't track it week to week. You mm-hmm. know, I walk in Wednesday morning and typically I don't specifically have a pull list. I am on a couple of different mailing lists from a couple of different stores that I'll send out 
you know, during you know on the Monday of, of the week or whatever, here's the list of new releases, and I'll usually like skim through those, and you know that'll flag certain things in my head. Usually, higher ticket items. Oh, this collection is coming out, and, and you know, so I'll I'll have that kind of in the back of my head, walking into the shop. But typically, I just walk in and start. Uh, you know, Midtown, the doors are on the right end, right far end of the, the, the new releases rack. So I'll start on the right-hand side and just walk my way up to the left, pulling, you know, the, the new books, and then, you know, do a circuit back the other way to make sure I haven't overlooked anything. Um, so, so, you know, I don't have... Uh, you know, I, I'm 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 reading a lot of stuff, and I, there's a lot of stuff that's coming out that I'm interested in, but I'm not tracking it so well <laughs> as to be able to tell you, you know, what most immediately there was. I can tell you things like in that three uh, eighteen bundle that, that that came in from Midtown. Uh, you know, there was a there was a new issue of of Grendel, and I was happy that there was a new issue of Grendel. I've been reading Matt Wagner's Grendel pretty much since he started it. I was there for uh, Kamiko Primer two back in 1981 or 1982, uh, and so you know, having a regular Grendel book that's nice. I, I like that, uh, and so I was happy to, to to get that in in the stack. And you know, I picked up all the, the first. Uh, releases from from upshot from awa uh and so you know while i'd read a couple of those in their in their uh, black and white preview a few months ago it was interesting to to get three or four of those and and you know read through them uh and you know there was a, there were a small stack of of dc books the robin uh 80th anniversary book was in there mm. uh which i thought was very nice um and then you know marvel stuff as well i i got the the, the new edition, the new annotated uh, Marvel's hardcover that includes the new epilogue that we did, uh, and that was a nice book. Um, you know, with the with the Marvel books, I still get them digitally. Hell, I send them out to people at this point. Um, I've got a I got a mailing list of of my creators in the Avengers office uh, that you know every. Monday or Tuesday after books go to press, I send around uh, you know PDFs so that everybody can kind of be caught up on at least books that are relative to books within my office. Relevant. Um, so I you know I have a stack. My email box is chock full of Marvel releases uh, from the last year. Even though I also have like two shelves of unread you know Marvel and DC books from bundles that have slowly accrued that I haven't been fast enough to, to keep up with. Um, so I'm not starving <laughs> for <laughs> new books just yet. And yet there is that itch in the back of my brain that tells me like, you know, Wednesdays come it's, it's new comic day. And I actually, uh, you know, uh, over the weekend I went back over to Midtown's site, uh, just to see if they had anything up for, for four one. Um, because I would have mail ordered those those two, uh, and really all they had was, you know, merchandise that that you know was not coming through. Uh, what I assume is the typical diamond uh, route, so statues and things and T-shirts and, and whatnot, but no actual comics and no list of what would have been out on on uh, April first. So I'm not even sure what the pull list would have been for <laughs> for tomorrow. Um, 
I'm actually going to have to go out and, and gather that intel up and figure out, okay, what was DC shipping on, on April 1st and what did the image have coming out and what did Boom have? Uh, you know, see if I can gather all of that from solicits and, and whatnot. Uh, so I've got some kind of a tally when the time comes that you know the, the flow of material starts again and I can start picking some of these things up uh, you know, in some other fashion. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, um, you know, given that obviously you're, you know, a, a prominent person within the industry, what is it like when you go to a comic book store? There's like a lot of, like I would imagine, obviously the people who work there would know who you are, but do other people notice notice you when you're there? Like, what is that like? Maybe I'm overblowing blowing into my head, but to me, you're very recognizable. So I'd imagine that people would notice. Um, every once in a while, um, typically most people on a on the the Wednesday morning at Midtown. Uh, you know, every once in a while there'll be somebody who'll, who'll say hi and will know who I am. But generally, beyond that, if they do, they tend to just be you know respectful of oh, dude's coming in to get his books and then he's going to work just like we are. You know, maybe don't maybe don't bug him right now. <laughs> um, so so generally, people and and you know more or less more most of the time I don't. I don't get recognized or I don't get ha- – the only time it's really happened, and it's really odd, um, you know, uh, my wife has a circle of friends, and a couple of times we've done vacations with them. Uh, and so we've you know, been staying in other areas of the country, uh, and a Wednesday would be coming up, and I'd be like, right, I'm going to go drive out and pick up you know, the books, which means I'm going to need to explore – you know, what are the comic shops in this area? What's the closest store? Uh, and maybe I need two or three of them because, you know, if a store is not particularly well stocked, I, I may need to hit two or three in the course of my Wednesday trip out. Um, and and there's a you know a, a friend of hers husband who's a big uh, like gaming guy and who's come along with me on one or two of these trips. And, you know, uh, I say, like, yeah, we're going to go to this thing. Nothing's going to happen or whatnot. And damned if any time I'm with this guy, <laughs> if I don't walk into a store and whoever's behind the counter doesn't go, hey, aren't you? And <laughs> on the one hand, I guess that makes me look pretty pretty special. But it literally is the only time it ever happens. <laughs> it's happened two or three times. Uh, and it's the weirdest thing because it's been shops in – widely different parts of the country um and yet that seems to be the thing like somehow standing next to my wife's friend's husband people (laughs) recognize me as long as i don't do that i'm i'm anonymous you know 95 percent of the time So I have a, a lot of questions. I mean, I mean, you've worked in the industry forever, so I could probably pepper you with questions forever, but I'll try to rein it in a little bit. Um, I was in preparation for this. I was listening to our original conversation, which was, I think, about four years ago. And one thing I, that kind of came up, you were mentioning how, um, you know, part of the reason that you kind of first fell in love with comics or were introduced to comics was because your dad would pick them up because he was a heavy smoker. And so he would kind of go out and end up bringing comics back. So I was just curious what your personal stance is on certain characters not having cigars anymore, which is a weird question, I guess, to ask. But obviously, we used to have Thing, Logan, and Nick Fury were the most prominent kind of smokers, and obviously we don't have that in comics anymore. Do you miss that iconography of those characters with cigars, or do you think that was the right choice to kind of phase it out because it's not really part you of know, our culture anymore? I, I, uh, I support that 100%, you know, really more than 100%. Uh, and, and, you know, I understand 
in the abstract, the instinct of people who go, yeah, but it was always it was always a part of them, and it was an icon, and it was a thing, and and it made them seem so cool, which immediately makes me go, well, then we definitely should get rid of that stuff. Mm. But on top of that, you know, we, you know, you used to not be able to turn around in comics, but for finding an African-American character drawn as a watermelon-eaten, big-lipped caricature. And we don't do that anymore either. Why? Because it's wrong. Because it's not right. And, uh, you know, encouraging and, 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 and putting forward the image that uh, smoking is attractive and cool, uh, particularly to a young audience, although the audience for comics these days is... Uh, you know, older than it would have been then. Uh, that's I, I can't support that. That's not a good thing. Hmm. So, sure, on some sort of you know quasi weird aesthetic level, I can go, yeah, the thing used to smoke cigars, and it was a you know a trademark shtick. Uh, at this point, he hasn't in like twenty years. So, yeah. uh, you know, for a whole generation, it's not an issue. And and the same thing with Wolverine and his little cheroots and Nick Fury and, and so forth. And none of those characters have been harmed one bit by, by not having, uh, you know, some smoking implement or a vape pen or whatever hanging out of their mouth. Um, you know, that's not really what made them cool. It was just an affectation. Uh, and it was an affectation that, you know, we're, we're kind of, we're, we've grown past at this point. Uh, and there's there's no reason to go back to it. It does. I don't feel like it helps anything. I don't think that it hurts the characterization one bit. Not to have that stuff there. Um, you know, we're 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 supposed to be more enlightened and and smarter now than we were in years past. And hopefully, this is a case where where we can be. For sure. Although I can I can I can say that I don't think I would ever want to see the thing vaping. I think I would not want to read that comic. You won't. I can guarantee that we will not do that. Okay, um, good. We'll avoid it. <laughs> um, you said before as a kid that you gravitated to the Julius Schwartz uh, edited titles when you were younger. Um, what was it about his the titles that he edited that really captivated you? Um, well, again, as a uh, you know, as a as a young kid, you have to understand too the landscape of comics in. 1973, 1974, um, there was a lot of stuff, um, but the Silver Age, you know, proper was over. It was a time of transition. It was a time when uh, everybody was kind of scrambling around to try and figure out what the new trend in, in comic books was going to be. Um, so it was kind of the Wild West. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of material that, uh, frankly, wasn't all that polished. Some of it was really good. But it wasn't very uh, uh, it wasn't very solid on a construction level. A lot of, of new young, uh, uh, mostly you know fans turned pro were coming into the industry at that time, both as writers and as artists, um, who brought a lot of enthusiasm to what they were doing, but who were still at the earliest stages of learning their craft, and consequently, a lot of the material you can look back at now and if you could get the nostalgia out of your eyes, look at and go, yeah, this is at best shaky. <laughs> uh, 
uh, you know, to say nothing of the fact that you know the early '70s was a period in which they were they were downgrading the the printing plates and they were downgrading the paper stock and the number of pages. Um, it was it was kind of a crummy time for comics all around. Um, so within that, um, you know, what what Julie was doing uh, in the titles that he was still editing: Flash, Justice League, uh, Action, and Superman. Uh, Detective and Batman were still very much spiritually, after a couple of years of trying to follow some other trends like the the big relevancy boom in the early 70s, um, he was kind of back to doing the kind of tightly plotted, uh, uh, you know, turns turns on a a puzzle, turns on a a quirk of science, uh, you know, stories that had made him a success in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and as much as anything, the, 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 the simplicity and the structure of that appealed to me. Um, I like the fact that, that you know, in most of the Julie Schwartz books, and again, I could not have quantified this as a kid. It was only years later that I was able to look back and go, oh, right, these were, these were Julie's books, and that's the common denominator between them. Um, you know, but I like the fact that for the most part in the Julie Schwartz book, the longest story you were ever going to get was two parts. Hmm. And it was going to be a very simple two-parter. And if you'd missed the first part, the second part was going to be complete enough unto itself that you were going to be fine. And that was a real thing in 1974, 1975, when I was six and seven and had no uh, chance of being able to reliably find a subsequent issue. Um, you know, every Marvel comic in 1975 was a long-running serial. Um, you know, like clockwork, every one of them was to be continued uh, and consequently was eminently frustrating. The other thing that I found a lot with the Marvel books of that era, and I don't mean to be, you know, knocking them because clearly I'm a Marvel guy now, but... Um, <laughs> But, but routinely, there would be their covers, you know, the cover policy that they were following, the, the, the scenario that they, they used, whatever their cover image was, that would be the cliffhanger for the issue. And so you'd pick up a, a comic in which the cover would be Captain America being thrown into a volcano, and you'd be going, oh my God, how is Cap going to escape from this volcano? And you'd read through your book, and the last page would be, and now, Captain America, I throw you into this volcano. To be continued, next issue, Cap will get out of this. And you'd go, shoot, I spent a quarter on this, <laughs> and I'm never going to know how Cap gets out of the volcano. I'm never. I, I am so screwed. Um, so I liked the fact that there was a completeness uh, to to the books Julie was doing. There was also, you know, honestly, there was a simplicity to them. Um, you know, most of the best Marvel material of that of that era, and really the best DC material as well, tended to be more sophisticated than I was ready to handle at six or seven. Um, you know, I would not have been a fan of Len Wein and Bernie Wright's and Swamp Thing as a kid because I would not have had enough life experience and sophistications to be able to appreciate what it was doing. Um, but there was something very basic about he's the Flash and he's Barry Allen, police scientist, and he's married to this woman, Iris Allen, and they live in this, this suburban house just like I do. And every month, some crazy costumed villain is attempting to 
rob a bank or a jewelry store or hold up a you know a liquor place or whatever and the flash has to contend with whatever crazy new trap or weapon or contraption or 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 thing this guy is doing and in 14 pages usually that story would be wrapped up and there'd be enough space in the back for like six pages of green lantern doing the same thing in space uh um so so you know uh yeah that i could you know i could i could handle and that was interesting to me it was colorful it was exciting it was at the level i was ready to engage with uh, you know, with it, uh, and the same thing was true of of you know, Justice League in those days, and pretty much all of Julie's other books. Um, you know, and it was weird because you know I could tell that there was something, and in my head I it would define it as there's something wrong with World's Finest Comics, and there's something wrong with Superboy <laughs> because those books look on the surface like they're the same. They're superhero comics. But the characters act in weird ways. The stories are structured kind of strange. Brave and the Bold was a puzzle to me because half the time it would kind of work and the other half of the time it would be bizarre and I wouldn't, you know. And so those were titles I tended to avoid, uh, not because I didn't like the characters involved, but because I didn't like the underlying storytelling philosophy that was being used. Uh, and that really just came back to you know uh, what I realized years later, which is oh, it was it was Julius Schwartz and how he was putting these together that was was uh, you know working for me more than the specifics of what character and what title and and so forth. It's interesting. So like in in the current kind of with with kids coming up now who do end up reading comics, like what do you, where do you think they should be reading, or what do you think kind of would kind of provide them? what you had before where you had you know these stories where they could easily grab onto it without it being necessarily part of a big epic story which we do see a lot more of in current comics like where where should you like my son's six and a half where should i be directing him so that he's really able to kind of grab onto something in the same way that you were able to at that same age well the again the big difference between now and when i was doing it is you know one there are a million collected editions Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, the collected edition is now like you know the preeminent format everywhere. Um, and, and two, there's a huge swath of people doing younger reader, you know, up to YA uh, material in comic book format. You know, uh, Reina is the is the obvious person to, to point at with this because she does astronomical numbers on her books. But there are a whole flight of people. In and around her, and you know, they we, they tend to be thought of as kind of the scholastic crowd because they move so many units through, uh, you know, the scholastic book clubs and and things. But you know, uh, assuming that there are any bookstores left, you go to any bookstore, and and you know, in their their you know kids area and you know younger readers area, they have shelves of of collections that are that are designed for those audiences. Uh, and it's not always, you know, Marvel or DC superhero material. Certainly, we do things that are more aimed at that. And uh, you know, we've done new printings and new new editions in the last uh, six months or so of things like uh, all the earliest Ms. Marvel and and uh, Squirrel Girl and Ironheart and uh, Miles Morales and and so forth. 
uh, books in this nice, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, larger than a typical paperback book, smaller than a trade paperback uh, collection size that seems to be kind of the standard for that audience. Um, and it's a, there's a wealth of material there, and a lot of it is really, really good. Um, so, uh, you know, you're, the, the theater market for this stuff is completely different today than it was uh, when we were growing up. Uh, and then the, the other thing is um, there's there's a this thing going on. I don't know if you've heard about it, but but Marvel's got a movie studio now, and, <laughs> and they make movies based on all the characters. Uh, and those those movies, a lot of people tend to see them, <laughs> and they see them in the theater, and they see them on streaming, and they see them at home, uh, and and uh, you know that we have animation. Uh, and you know now there's a whole Disney streaming service where there's just hours and upon hours of stuff there, and that's where where you know that 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 new audience potentially connects with those characters such that then you know you can you can hook them into reading the the ongoing uh, storylines of those characters or wanting to see what is happening now or what happens next with them. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a combination of all of that stuff. Uh, it's just it's a very different landscape than it would have been for me in '73 and '74, uh, you know, coming into into contact with this stuff. And I expect for for you as well. Absolutely. Uh, no, let's go back to uh, Julie for a second. So, I mean, obviously that his his books had a, uh, a formative impact on you in terms of you operating as an editor. Which editors do you think have had the most impact or influence on how you operate as an editor? Um, operate as an editor is, I think, probably a different a different metric. Um, and you know, the the guys that probably had the most impact on me are either guys that I you know uh, uh, taught me directly that I learned from, uh, were on staff at Marvel at the at the time, uh, and in a couple of cases, probably some guys who who uh, you know I took opposite lessons from and went, okay, never do never do that. I see him <laughs> doing that. Don't don't do that. That's a mistake. Um, you know, but that would include you know Bob Budiansky, who first hired me, uh, uh, Tom DeFalco, who was the editor in chief when I was first hired, uh, the late Mark Grunewald, obviously, um, who would do weekly uh, uh, assistant editor classes to kind of impart the the lessons and the accumulated wisdom uh, that uh, Marvel had had put together, uh, you know, to everybody there. Um, you know, certainly, uh, you know, I've learned things. Don't tell him, uh, but I've I've learned things working with Joe Casada. Um, uh, you know, and honestly, you know, I've I've you know I've learned things. You know, working, uh, you know, over and, and and across the aisle with people, and you know, from from you know younger editors than myself as well. Um, you know, I learned stuff working with uh, with Axel. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, hopefully I'm learning different things all the time and am now hopefully also passing some of that learning back on to the, the new generation that's, that's coming up. Um, you know, and then, you know, historically it's all, it's all the, it's all the big guys. It's, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's Stan and it's, you know, Shelley Mayer and, and it's Julie and it's, you know, Danny O'Neill, and it's Roy, and, and you know, Jim uh, Shooter, and, and you, know, uh, you know, pretty much anybody, Harvey Kurtzman, um, <laughs> anybody that, 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 that did this, 
you know, it did something analogous to this gig um, that you can sort of analyze and figure out and, and adapt and, and adopt to what you're, you're doing. Mm-hmm. Now, I always ask this question to anyone who ever worked with Grunewald, and that's usually uh, if, I mean, it's a, one of those conjecture questions, but how different do you think Marvel would have been if he hadn't passed away? Because obviously he was a very strong uh, personality within Marvel, and you know, wh- how different do you think Marvel could or, could or would have been? Um, I, I don't know what kind of answers you, you've gotten from other people. Uh, I will tell you uh, for myself... I don't think it would be very different um, because absolutely, Mark was uh, was a, you know had a formidable presence. Uh, you know, he had stuff he believed in and advocated for very strongly. Um, he he had a point of view and he was very articulate. Uh, but he also uh, you know could learn things and would bend and change with the with the time and with the need uh, and, and would adapt what he was doing to what was going on. And I I think that. The larger forces that helped to shape Marvel in the days after Mark was no longer with us were so large and so uh, omnipresent. You know, the bankruptcies, the reorganizations, people coming in. Uh, you know, Bill Jemis and Joe, and and uh, you know the Disney purchase and and the the rise of the the movies and you know, all of this stuff. That within that, any one person could have a certain amount of an effect. But I don't think any one person, uh, you know, particularly just among the editorial staff, without being, you know, the editor in chief or the lead guy, um, you know, nobody within that stew was going to be able to have such a profound influence that it would change the direction so dramatically. Mm-hmm. There'd be a little bit of change. It would be a little bit different. Um, certainly, all the comics I edited for the last twenty years. Uh, or so it would be completely different because I really I don't know if I said this the last time or, or not, but in a in a very real way I ended up in Mark's chair, uh, and you know that all the the books that I I historically have worked on uh, have tended to be the books that that he worked on, um, and uh, so so most everything that I've done. I've done because Mark has not been here to do it. So, you know, you can look at all that and go on, oh, all that stuff that 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 Brevoort did, it would be it would have been much, much better if Mark had done it. <laughs> and I won't really argue you on that. But um, you know, how different or or how much better or how much you know, there'd be a bunch of ideas that wouldn't be my ideas that would, would be here that would be Mark's ideas. Um, and, and and it's impossible to quantify that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in a in a in a real in a real way. So yeah, there 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 definitely would be differences, large and small. Uh, and maybe I don't know. Maybe there wouldn't be a Winter Soldier movie mm. <laughs> because Mark wouldn't have brought Bucky back. You know, or maybe he would, and it would have been a much better movie because they would have had much better source material to draw from. That that Mark <laughs> would have been an extra piece between Ed Brubaker and Steve Epting and Michael Lark and the guys that did that story. That would have made it. Twenty percent better, and and consequently everything. You know, you just can't you can't possibly measure that. No. Well, I appreciate you spending time on that hypothetical, anyway. Sure. 
So let's go back for a second. So in the mid-90s, when you're kind of really coming up as an editor, you work in the spider office as part of the you know the group head kind of period. I'm, I'm always curious what that period was actually like, because obviously you've, you've survived all these different periods of tumultuous change within both the industry and in Marvel. And I'm always just curious what it was kind of like to be boots on the ground in the middle of the clone saga and actually operating in Marvel at that time. What what was that actually like? Because I think you were working on kind of the special projects as well within the spider office, weren't you? I wasn't working on any any of the core Spider-Man books. The, the, at that point, there were four ongoing Spider-Man titles, one a week, and I tended to be the person working on everything that wasn't that. <laughs> um, but I was I was I was there at that point. I was in the middle of all of that for that that year year and a half. Um, and you know that was a crazy period to begin with. You know there there were larger forces at work. Certainly, the idea that there'd be five editor in chiefs and that you'd take Marvel editorial and subdivided into like five smaller imprints was nonsense and crazy and 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 bananas uh, and didn't really work terribly well um but on top of that you know the need that the then owners of the company had uh to keep their stock price at a certain point um so that they wouldn't default on all of the the loans in which they'd used it as as leverage or collateral uh, you know, was such that that uh, you know there was just an unrelenting pressure for more, 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 more. Uh, and the most telling part of that, to me, is that uh, when the five editor in chief system was inaugurated, uh, the five EICs were given marching orders for the year, uh, and those marching orders boiled down to, to to this: Bob Harris was told, Bob, in the next year. You need to grow X Men by twenty percent. You know the do- the amount of money we made this year. We need twenty percent more next year. Uh, and Bob Budiansky, who became the, the Spider Man editor in chief, they said, "Bob, we need you to grow Spider Man by ten percent, ten percent more than we had last year." And the other three editor in chiefs, Bobby Chase, uh, Carl Potts, and Mark Grunwald, were all told, essentially, "We don't need you to grow it at all." But you can't go down. So the money that we made last year from Marvel Heroes and Marvel Edge and, and, and whatnot, it's got to be exactly the same. And attempting to achieve those goals in uh, 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 a, a crashing marketplace was insane. Uh, but those those were that was kind of the job metric that everybody was was presented with to try to to to, to meet. Uh, and the ironic thing is the only one of the five that actually uh, achieved it was Bob. He did it kind of by strip mining the heck out of everything, you know, Spider-Man. Um, but he did it. He grew Spider-Man by 10% and then he was laid off. <laughs> so, so you know, because by that point the regime, the regime had changed and those rules no longer applied. That wasn't the metric that was being used that next week. Uh, and so there's – there, there, there's something that is sort of profoundly unfair about that, but that tends to be that tends to be business. Um, it was, you know, like anything, it was a crazy time. Not so much even just because of the the, the clone saga per se, but just because of the state of uh, of the industry and the fact that the you know the speculator bubble was bursting or had burst, and uh, uh, you know sales were were beginning to tumble from the ridiculous numbers that they had been posting for the last couple of years to numbers that were more reasonable but that nobody thought was were terribly more reasonable um, 
and uh, uh, you know it was constantly a scramble. There was constantly a need. We need we need to do this. We need to launch this. We need to do more of this. We need to because you were constantly trying to achieve that. We have to get to ten percent, uh, and everything was in the service of that. And so uh, you know it was a crazy treadmill. I can answer more specific questions if you've got them, but just in a general sense. No, that's that's the. I mean, that's the yeah, that's, the land. that's a great over, overview of uh, how hectic it was and trying to kind of manage all those spinning plates. So in this new environment where now Bob is, you know, the EIC of the Spider Group, and you are, were you given more kind of autonomy at the time to kind of work on those other kind of projects because there was such a, a desire for more content? Like, were you able to kind of get things done that maybe you couldn't have done previous because they needed this aggressive new, you know, slate of, of titles and other materials? Not necessarily in the way you're you're thinking. Um, you know, it wasn't like I suddenly launched a bunch of books or, or was able to just do what I wanted on titles because I was there and we needed a bunch of stuff. It wasn't as simple as we need to, to create 10% more titles. We need to create 10% more revenue. And you can do that in any number of ways. One of the easiest ways to do that and probably the best is if you could increase your Spider-Man sales on Amazing Spider-Man by 10%, you've kind of done it. Um, so, so it wasn't even so much, oh, we need more. It was, we need better and better selling. Every project tended to have a reason why it existed. Sometimes it was just line extension. Okay, part of how we're going to get to the 10% is by introducing another uh, Spider-Man book. Let's bring Marvel team up back, but we'll call it Spider-Man team up this time. Uh, and that'll be a thing, and we'll do that quarterly, and so that could fall, much like what they did with the Superman books, that could fall into the, the fifth weeks on those months that have five Wednesdays rather than four, so we always have a Spider-Man book out that month. Um, you know, uh, do uh, a 99-cent Spider-Man book because we have this initiative that we want to do now for the newsstands where we do a cheaper a cheaper line of books um, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, that'll become Untold Tales of Spider-Man largely because, you know, of myself and Glenn Greenberg, the guys that figured out what that book should be and how it could function. But, but uh, you know, not, a lot of those projects didn't start with me necessarily. I, you know, I inherited them and I had to execute them as, as best I could within that larger uh, system. Um, I had a decent amount of autonomy in that. Uh, like I said, Bob had, had brought me in uh, when he was working, you know, what was at the time Marvel Special Projects Division. Uh, he and I had worked together for four or five years at that point. Um, and so, you know, we had a good, easy working relationship. And he trusted me as much as he trusted anybody, uh, you know, doing stuff. And possibly, uh, you know, I, I had a better relationship with him or a closer relationship with him just because of that history than most of the other people in the Spider-Man department into which he was kind of brought. Um, so they didn't have as much close contact with him beforehand and consequently, uh, you know, I just had an easier track with, with that stuff. It was just luck of the draw. Um, but, you know, that was, you know, those are also periods where I was figuring out how to edit comics, um, you know, and, and that's an ongoing process. But, uh, you know, at the time, it's not like, you know, I you know, I really knew what I was doing. I had a couple of philosophies. I had a couple of ideas for what should and shouldn't be done. But a lot of it was, was you know, trying stuff and 
uh, uh, you know, trying to do right by creators and 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 uh, you know, uh, trying to stay true to the characters and the stories and so forth. Um, stuff that sounds very uh, high-minded, but you know, all of it really also in the service of we need to, you know, we need to generate ten percent more more revenue. How 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 best do we do that? How do we how do we accomplish what we need to accomplish? Given where your career ended up kind of moving in terms of the different books that you have edited over your career, what, what, how is it that you've never really edited, unless I'm wrong, uh, the main Spider-Man book? Um, I haven't, and uh, that really, I could have if I'd really wanted to when we started the, the three, times a, three times a month Spider-Man, because at that point, uh, before that, the Spidey books were with Axel. And in that particular uh, shuffle that went around because somebody had left staff, Axel inherited the X-Men books and couldn't do the Spider-Man books anymore. And so the spy books came over to me in my office. Uh, and if I wanted it at that point, you know, I was the one that said rather than having three books, let's end Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man and Sensational Spider-Man and just do amazing three times a month uh, and we'll run it in this kind of way. And I laid out at least the broad strokes of what that plan would be. Um, and I could have edited that, but to do that, I would have had to stop editing Avengers and Fantastic Four and other books because it was such a monstrous task. Uh, and that wasn't a uh, that wasn't the thing I was particularly looking to do at that point. Uh, and so instead, you know, we ended up hiring Steve Wacker from uh, he had been at DC, uh, and and uh, you know, Steve did all that work uh, and did a brilliant job of of pulling that team together and really you know managing that that whole three times a month structure, which was a, a beast and a bear. Um, but, uh, you know, again, there are times when I, when I might have, if I'd really wanted to, but usually there was a trade off and I didn't want to make the trade off. Is there, do you ever think of a time when you'd want to kind of move on from the stable of books that you've had for so long or that you've kind of been in the same kind of family of books? Because obviously like, you're very entrenched in those books, but would you ever want to you know, move, move around offices or is that ever anything that ever comes up? Um, you know, again, from time to time, but it's also, you know, books will, will tend to migrate here and there. Like, um, you know, obviously – Right this moment, big exciting things are going on in the X Men world. Uh, you know, based around you know Jonathan and what he's been doing on those books. And I've worked with Jonathan for a long time. I was one of the the earliest guys to bring him into Marvel. I don't think I was the literally the first, but I think I was the first to give him regular work. And he and I did a lot of material together: Secret Warriors and Fantastic Four, and obviously you know Avengers and New Avengers and and Secret Wars. Uh, and, and, and so forth. So I have a good, you know, a good, long, strong relationship with Jonathan. And so, you know, hearing that he was going to come and, and do X-Men stuff, you know, there's certainly an impulse in my gut to go, yeah, if I'm going to do X-Men, this this is the X-Men to do. Let me do this. Um, but by the same token, um, you know, it's not like there was a great need for me to do X-Men. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Jonathan doesn't need me to hold his hand. Uh, it's it's fine, and so you know, and and uh, you know, Jordan White and his his team with uh, Chris Robinson and and uh, 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 Annalise Peace uh, are, are are doing are doing fine, and so I get to just enjoy those books as somebody that's reading them, and and every once in a while, you know, interfacing with them on X Men Fantastic Four or or you know, other titles like that. Um, so you know, it's always a possibility, and like I say, if I really wanted it to happen. 
I could probably get it to happen, not necessarily immediately, but, you know, if I went to, you know, people and said, hey, KCB, hey, Dan Buckley or whatever, you know, the next time we do some kind of a big shuffle, I want I want to I want to take over Spider-Man or, you know, or X-Men or, you know, or whatever, whatever book there is that I haven't touched, Daredevil, um, you know, that would carry a certain amount of, of weight in in weighing those things out. Um, but the flip side of that would be that, you know, they would come back and say, OK, well. We can do this, but if you're going to edit Spider-Man, you're not going to be able to keep Avengers. Like it's too much. It's too much for any one person, and I have to be you know, at that point ready and willing to go. Right, I'll I'll switch over. I will now do Spider-Man or X-Men or Daredevil or whatever, and you know, say goodbye to the, these things that I've been with for a while. Um, and and really, you know, uh, Avengers has been my. Uh, you know, my anchor store for, you know, uh, far longer than any other human being. Um, you know, I, 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 I did the math on it once, and I can say two things definitively. One, I have edited Fantastic Four longer than any other human. I beat uh, the, the previous record holder, who was Stan Lee, uh, a couple of years ago, and then I let, let, I let the title go. I let Mark Panisha have it after that. Uh, and then it ended up coming back to me when we relaunched it. Um, on Avengers, I have not only you – know, I've edited that book for literally uh, in excess of 20 years. I think, I think we're up to 22 now. Yeah. Uh, and that is not only – that is not only longer than any other human being. It is twice as long as <laughs> any other human being. Uh, and so, you know, there's, there's, there's kind of a – uh, a reticence to let that go, <laughs> you know that that that's 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 the that's home base, uh, in, in a very real way, um, you know my my kids aren't twenty two, not all of them, uh, so so uh, you know for for all of their existence that's 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 a solid state thing, uh, and so it, that's not a move I would I would contemplate lightly. Um, that being said, inevitably, eventually. Somebody else is going to edit Avengers because that's you know that, that 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 comes with the gig, and whether that means I'll edit Amazing Spider-Man or whether that means I'll edit nothing um, because I'm you know retired or dead or on the street <laughs> uh, you know or or working somewhere else you know only only the future will tell. But you know you only you only ever really get to be the temporary custodian of any of this stuff, uh, and so you know that's that's a fairly significant run um you know uh, probably more than fairly i don't know that there's another one like it hmm. uh certainly not a contemporary one um you know there's a couple of pe- you know people uh uh you know uh, <laughs> a few months ago victor gorelick passed uh, which was very sad he was a, a fine gentleman worked for archie comics for for you know literally like 60 years uh, and and I saw that and I went well. That makes that makes my Avengers run look like ass. That that, <laughs> that guy was there forever, and he was in the center of, of Archie. So so as much as I think I've 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 managed something uh, noteworthy next to Victor Gorelick, I'm nothing. I'm not even a bug on the windshield. <laughs> 
So I have to ask, so as you've risen kind of through the ranks over the years to be executive editor and be VP, like how have your day-to-day interactions with comics actually changed? And are you able to be more selective about which titles you personally edit as a result because you have other responsibilities? Um, I can be more selective in that I have more pull and or, you know, I, I garner more respect or fear depending on who <laughs> you happen to be. Um, you know, people people can at least uh, you know look and go have confidence that there's enough of a track record there that if I say I want to do something, if I want to come up with a project and go, I, I, I want to do this Spider-Man life story thing where it'll be six issues and it'll all be in real time. It will start in 1962 with a 15 year old Spider-Man and will end in 2019 with a, you know, whatever it ends up being, a 58-year-old Spider-Man or a 78-year-old Spider-Man, um, you know, uh, people can can look at me and go, okay, he's he's been doing this for 30 years. He could probably put together 20 pages that will make sense and, and you know, make that idea work. And if he's enthusiastic about doing it, what the hell, we have to publish something, we might as well do this thing. Um, you know, so, so there's there's that. Um, you know, I... I I still probably edit hands-on about as much, if not more, than just about anybody else. Um, although, you know, in fa- in fairness, I have more assistant with that than I might have used to. That that typically it would usually be me and one other person, either an assistant editor or an associate editor. Uh, and these days, it's me and two others. Uh, and then I oversee the efforts of a bunch of other editors beyond that. But in terms of, you know, the random issue of Avengers, it's me and Alana Smith, and these days Martin Byro, and and that's you know that's it. We're 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 making that comic, and and my hands are in the engine as much as they ever were. Um, you know, all the job title really does means is I'm also thinking about bigger stuff. Uh, you know, and involved in larger conversations like, what are we going to do when when our distributor closes down? Uh, and I'm not necessarily as involved in those as some other people are, but I'm around the edges and and uh, you know, reacting and responding to what's going on. Uh, you know, what should we publish next year? Who should do what? You know, uh, uh, what project should we do? Uh, you know, what's our what does our budget forecast look like? What, where do we need to make up product? You know, we don't have a big enough book for you know, to anchor August. So what do we do there? You know, I, I get to be involved in all of those conversations and help come up with solutions for all of that. Um, but that, again, that's all sort of tertiary to actually the core job of all this, which is making the books. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just do, I do a lot of that. I do more of it, uh, you know, more of it more broadly than I used to. Um, I, I do it a lot more more quickly. There's a lot less hesitation. Uh, certainly, I'm, I'm a lot more experienced and confident in my, in my choices as a than I might have been in 1995 when I was, you know, hoping underlying ideals and philosophies still count and and are still in play. Um, but that's really for other people to decide. Uh, you know, over the years, in the eyes of you know any given given fan, I've been the hero, the villain, the the good guy, the demon, the <laughs> the, the schmuck, the lucky stiff. Uh, uh, you know, the keeper of the flame. The, you know, every, everything across that spectrum that you could possibly be good and bad, uh, and that I you know, I would expect to continue. 
for sure. Uh, I hope so. Uh, now you do bring up uh, Spider-Man Life Story. So what was it like kind of working on that book? And again, what was the kind of genesis of that? Like it's a, it's a beautiful book. I mean, first of all, if you have Mark on it, of course it's going to look amazing. Uh, but Chip really nailed every beat of it. So like what kind of, what was that discussion like to create something like that, which is different, um, but would still resonate with people? Well, that's, uh, that book is odd in that over the years, um, on at least a couple of different occasions, um, people have pitched some version of the underlying idea. You know, I can remember talking to Roger Stern about doing something like that probably back around 1999 or thereabouts. Um, you know, the idea of doing a, a version of the Marvel Universe where it, it all moves and ages in real time. Uh, and so Chip was the latest person to kind of pitch that that version of things, which was, you know, we we started in 1961 and we go chronologically up to the up to the present, and 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 it you know it all moves in in real time. And you know the pitch that that, that he gave to me was called Marvel Age or Marvel Ages, um, and it was intended to be like literally everybody, uh, and it had the same problem that all of them have had. Uh, since I tried to start cracking this idea back in the 90s, which is it's too much. You can't do all of it. Um, and so, you know, he and I had talked about this a couple of times. And it had kind of been backburnered. Uh, and then we were in another meeting where we were talking about and coming up with ideas for projects uh, for the Marvel's uh, anniversary year. Um, and in the course of that, uh, it was it was Darren Shan who now uh, now he said so, I don't remember exactly what it was he said but he said something about you know you could do that you know but you know with you know just just Spider Man and I went like the penny drop like boom that's that that's how you saw that? jumped across the table and was like, "I'm, I'm taking that with you know in a very you know real way." It's not like Darren had fully just thought yet, but you know that was where the the editor with the the biggest title and the loudest mouth happened to win. It happened to be me, and so I, you know, I went back to Chip and I said, "Hey, Chip, what if we did this, but it was just Spider Man?" Because I think that'll make it manageable enough where you could do it in six issues. Uh, and, and touch on enough stuff and see the character growth and reflect the years that it was in, um, and 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 yet you know it would still be fulfilling to people. Uh, and and then with that, uh, you know, Chip came back and still said, "Well, I can do that. I think I, I'm into it, but I'm going to need 30 page issues rather than normal 20 page issues." Um, and so we ended up with that, uh, and that you know by itself almost implied. Uh, the fact that Mark Bagley had to draw it because in addition to the fact that Mark plus Spider-Man always works, uh, he's got <laughs> such a he's got such a long history with that character between Ultimate Spider-Man and Amazing Spider-Man back in the day and so forth. You know, it really is the modern day equivalent of John Romita drawing that story. Um, but also, Mark is fast. 
Uh, and Mark works. Mark sits down at the, at the at the board every day and he produces. So if you're, you're going to do six issues that are 30 pages each and you want to get them out monthly and you've only got so much lead time, he's the kind of guy you're going to have to turn to no matter what. So it was very serendipitous that we were able to put that team together. You know, Chip had been wanting to do more to, to impact on the look and the design of, of our comics. And so do take something like uh, Spider-Man Life Story, where he did the covers and designed the logo and the type treatment and everything. He allowed it to have a, a particular that kind of set it apart from our regular books. You know, you could see it on the stands and not mistake it for just another issue of Amazing Spider-Man or, or, or uh, you know, Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man or whatever. Um, and and it just, you know, it worked out nicely. <laughs> um, so, so, uh, so it was a good project. Uh, but I do feel bad still to this day uh, you know about Darren um, for you know because he just he he he, he had the, the the half an idea and I just I just ran over him like a steamroller I beat <laughs> him into the ground and and I don't know I don't know if he's quite gotten to his feet yet from it. <laughs> Another book that came out last year that I want to ask about uh, in terms of its genesis um, was the history of the Marvel Universe by Mark Wade, uh, which is such a beautiful book. Um, but I'm just curious, yep. like how that came about well, thank you. and cause I mean, first of all, it, it takes a, a Herculean task to somehow put it all together in a way. And I feel like, um, the people I would have on my short list to put together a book like this, I think Mark is one of two people I would want to write it. Um, that's just from a reader's perspective. So I feel like you got the yep. right person to write and somehow make this work. And the artwork is absolutely gorgeous, but I'm just curious if you can walk us through how this project even came about. Sure, sure, I, I can do that. That actually was a product of the same meeting. Oh, so so your timing is excellent. <laughs> um, as, you know, as I said earlier, we were we were coming up with ideas for projects to celebrate Marvel's 80th anniversary, um, and so and so a number of projects came out of that. One of which was the idea of doing you know the history of the Marvel Universe. A couple of years ago, um, for one of the Captain America anniversary issues. Um, I think it was for Cap 50, if I'm remembering right. Um, I did a little, uh, I think it was, you know, 8 to 16 page story with Marcos Martin, which was sort of the, you know, here's the history of Captain America in in 8 or 16 pages. They were all very copy light. Um, they were very design oriented. They let Marcos really go to town, you know, with the graphics and visuals. But they pretty much told you up to that point, and that was in the midst of, uh, when Bucky Barnes was Captain America, you know all the key salient points that you needed to know, um, you know if uh, if you hadn't been following along to know who Cap was, uh, what he did, you know where he went, and so forth. And that you know really was just me stealing from the history of the DC universe that Marvel Wolfman and George Perez did after uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths back in 1986, where they did the same kind of thing, but for everything. Um, so sitting in this meeting and talking about, you know, could we do this, you know, history of the, of the Marvel universe, I kind of had my template right there. And it was, I'm going to, I'll do it like this, this short Captain America, America story, except it'll be, you know, six books long and it'll cover everything. Um, you know, and really on that, you know, there was a ton of help, uh, even beyond Mark, who, who, uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, he knows his way around comic book history, 
Uh, and he was you know, absolutely the perfect sort of person to, to get for this, not just because he knew the events and, and, and could put them together, uh, but because you know, he also very strongly felt um, correctly that there had to be a, sto- a story and an emotional context for what you were seeing, that this couldn't just be a history book. Um, you know, it had to be a story that was being told, and it had to be a story that was being told for some purpose, you know, towards some some effect, uh, and there had to be some manner of, of emotional climax by the time you got to the end of it. And in, in you know, in talking to him and, and brainstorming on that, you know, we, we, we pulled from the, the Jonathan Fantastic Fours, where uh, we established that, that uh, you know, at the end of the heat death of the universe, uh, Franklin Richards and Galactus would face that, and uh, you know, Galactus would would die and expel all the energy he had consumed over the years to create a new Big Bang and start the new universe. And Franklin would go into that universe, and he would be the the new Galactus figure of that world. And so, by setting it there at the very end, we could encapsulate everything that happened, but put it in the context of an emotional journey. Um, really, though, the backbone of that entire series, um, you know, in addition to being the the, the guys that put together. All of the the super detailed annotations in the back was the the Marvel Handbook uh, research crew, uh, which is a crew of like eight eight or so uh, guys that uh, uh, you know have written most of the Marvel Universe handbooks over the last ten years, uh, at least ten years, um, and who sort of uh, you know exist as a uh, a research brain trust that we can tap. You know, when it was time to start this project. Uh, I started with them. I reached out to them through our intermediary, Brian Overton, and said, hey, we want to do this thing. Um, you know, let's, can I get an encapsulation of here's everything? Like, what's, you've clearly got a reference document somewhere that says, here is Marvel history. That's what I need to start with. Uh, and they provided, they provided that, uh, and it was super detailed, as you'd imagine, and I took it and I broke it down not only into six issues, I broke it down into into pages in each issue, um, just to have a, a map. And ultimately, you know, as Mark wrote the thing, he adjusted that and varied that both because there were things that that I skipped over that he felt were crucial to include, and in most cases, he was correct. Um, you know, or, or there was stuff that both of us had, had overlooked or forgotten, or in at least one case, you know, there were stories that came up while we were producing it that were kind of like, oh, we should we should reflect that. Uh, you know, it, it, it's it's a fluke of, of timing because these things can never be perfect. But if we were doing that book six months later, we'd have talked a lot about Null and the the, the creation of the symbiotes. You know, early on in the history of the Marvel Universe, and none of that stuff is there because none of those stories had come out mm. or been done at the time <laughs> that we were we were starting. Uh, and that right now is a very important th- thread in in uh, you know what's going on at least in a, in a certain core of the Marvel Universe that really should be represented. But you know, no matter when you do something like this something is going to have to be left out because you're at the same time you're making that history you're also continuing to explore and, and, and to add on to that history through all the books that you publish every every month um, you know Javier Rodriguez uh, you know I turned to because like Mark Bruce Martin I knew he had a very design oriented approach to a page and, and style uh, and he took to that assignment like a duck to water he was super energized by it uh, he and his, his inking partner Alvaro Lopez um, 
Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, he also, uh, Javier had started originally as a colorist. He'd actually colored work that, that Marcos had done, uh, uh, along with a number of other people. So in addition to, to, to you know, drawing it and laying it out uh, in terms of the black and whites, he also did all the colors on History of the Marvel Universe. And so he was always thinking in terms of that as he composed pages and, and you know, crammed an enormous amount of stuff into each thing, making it all pretty visually interesting uh, and, and uh, uh, engaging uh, while, while getting a, a ton of stuff and, and you know, making reference to uh, you know, an enormous amount of things. Uh, on every page, and again, that was that was really uh, you know thanks to the help of the, the 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 handbook researchers, because once we had our shoes worked out and once we'd get a script together, I would send it to them, and not only would they check it, uh, and he, they and I would go back and forth on uh, you know comments. Uh, you know, they, they they will sometimes get very very uh, uh, specific about about precision. Um, uh, and, and, you know, so sometimes I'd have to change the phrasing of something a little bit because it was a hair off or, or whatnot. Um, but they also would provide, uh, you know, documents of, of reference. Like not only is here's all the history, but here's here's where it all is and here are all the links where you could find the visual reference. Uh, and that was an enormous help in, in putting this together. So they really – I mean they're all – they're all listed in the in the book, and deservedly so, um, you know. But you know, they are kind of the unsung heroes of the history of the Marvel Universe. Um, you know, I got you know a week or so. Uh, I guess at this point, it's three or four weeks back. I got the, the you know, we released it in uh, the collection in you know Treasury Edition, the, the big version, uh, and the big version is really nice. Um, you know, it, it's a really good looking book in that in that form. Uh, and all the annotations in the back are excellent, and uh, you know, hopefully, it's a reference source that can stand the test of time. Except for the fact that null is an edited null, you're going to have to go somewhere else. So I have a question. So I mean, obviously, yeah, it was a brilliant book. Loved it, and again, the artwork is incredible, as you mentioned. That there's so much uh, detail packed in. Like there's a, a page that represents the entirety of the Clone Saga, and these small details that are somehow still all in there is absolutely like it floored me. But you mentioned that the fact that when you guys uh, republished it in a collective edition, you did it in this kind of larger, oversized kind of Marvel Treasury Edition style that you guys have been doing for a few of your releases. I'm just curious um, where the decision came to kind of first of all bring back that kind of reprinted style in that oversized format, which I think first happened with Grand Design and it was also done with, I think, Silver Surfer Black and a few others. And now to this book, and again, this, yep, this yep. book is absolutely the best way to view this this uh, this series because, as you said, every page is extra large and you can really pick out every detail and it's absolutely gorgeous. Well, thank you. Um, I, I'm, I'm pretty certain that the person who is responsible... Uh, for sort of the research of the Treasury Edition format is our uh, our VP of Sales, David Gabriel. Uh, again, another sort of unsung hero who is kind of Marvel's uh, person on the front line. He's constantly interfacing with the retailers uh, and with Diamond and, and putting together you know our, our our previous catalog and our sales material um, and overseeing our, our collections department. Um, he does a he does a, a lot of things very crucial to our business, um, and he, like so many of us, is an old time fan, and so he has good you know memories of you know the oversized Treasury editions that we used to get in the past, and I think uh, 
I don't know. I can't say for certain whether he was looking for an excuse to try to bring back the Treasury Editions <laughs> or whether he just looked at that first grand design book and went, you know, wow, like there's so much stuff here on every page and the panels are so small. Wouldn't it be cool if, it, if we printed the collection Treasury Edition size and you could really – you know, see more and immerse yourself in it. And that clearly worked for the Grand Design books, and so we've continued to do it with other books that we thought the format would benefit them. Obviously, with, with history, you know, he was the one that asked me, hey, do you think we should do this, uh, you know, in the in the Treasury format? And I said, yeah, absolutely, uh, because obviously there was so much in the art that, that Javier had done, and you could really appreciate it at that size in a, in a way that you, you know, it's like you couldn't at regular comic book size, but it doesn't have the same impact as it does you know, at that size. And the same kind of thing for the work that, that Trad did on uh, Silver Surfer Black. You know, not only was it a great series and, and was uh, you know very well loved by people, but uh, you know the the work he did is just much more uh, uh, you know explosive and, and uh, engaging and interesting. When you can see it big at the size he drew it, uh, uh, we'll we'll do stuff like that. Um, I have a few quick questions. We're kind of running short on your time, so I, I apologize for going so long. But uh, I want to go back for a second to the '90s because I'm really curious about that period. Um, when the decision was made that um, the kind of the Avengers kind of family of characters were going to be kind of shipped off and done by the Image guys uh, during that kind of experiment. Obviously, you're working in the offices at the time. What was the feeling in the offices when that happened? Uh, that you know these big mainstays of the Marvel universe were going to kind of be shipped off into their own kind of pocket bubble, and they weren't going to be existing in the regular Marvel universe at that time. Well, again, you know, the, the pocket bubble came later. The pocket bubble yeah. was 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 invented afterwards. You know what what was what was going on was that that you know those characters were being outsourced. To uh, to Jim and to Rob, uh, and and in fact they were going to be restarted with new number ones, and all of the history was going to, was being thrown out, um, and and that was uh, you know honestly to the people that were up at, at Marvel at the time that was an enormous kick in the teeth, um, you know in part because uh, you know certainly both Jim and Rob were huge creators during that period. Um, you know, they, they, they had enormous fan bases. They worked really hard. They'd established themselves at, at Image, um, and and they were they were movers and shakers. Um, but the, the the money that they had to work with, that they were paid by by Marvel, and the budgets that they were operating on for those books were far greater than anything that anybody at Marvel had had to work with to create the books beforehand. So it seemed like it's not really. Uh, 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 you know, a fair horse race here. Um, you know, you're giving one guy a Maserati and the other guy a Volvo, and saying, "Right <laughs> now, now, right, race." Um, you know, it's not exactly fair. You know, on top of which, you know, it's not like you know, Ghibli is not the best driver on the track to begin with. Uh, you know, you put him in the Volvo and he could still make it do stuff, but you know, you, you give him the Maserati and 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 he's going to fly. Um, you know, so it, and it definitely, you know, it, it was, you know, this was all during the bankruptcy years. Everything was very tenuous to begin with. Um, you know, people really looked at it as like, this is the beginning of the end. They're just going to shut down Marvel 
and they'll outsource whatever. The Marvel Universe is not going to be a thing anymore. All the characters are just going to exist in their own little pockets at different companies, you know, and, and maybe bouncing around from company to company. And, and this whole grand experiment that is the Marvel Universe will be, will be done. On top of which, we're all going to lose our jobs and, you know, be, be you know, working at Petco tomorrow. Um, so that really was the, was the, was the feeling, no question. Okay. So it was the sky is coming down. <laughs> so when when everything kind of comes back the following year, again, what was the feeling kind of then that like obviously I guess everyone was happy to kind of have these characters come back in house and obviously you got to take over the Avengers, but were there any other kind of feelings about, you know, being able to restore these characters to the Marvel universe and to the, you know, the proper place where they belong? Cuz it's interesting to look at the track record of how well received those books were in the Heroes Return era and they were all pretty much all like Grand Slams like they're all great books and it's just interesting that like they they, we finally bring this all back in-house as part of the Marvel Universe and they're all stellar well it's it's you know uh, uh, honestly the concern there and and uh, you know this was really uh, you know Bob Harris you know who was editor-in-chief in those days was 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 really at the forefront of this you know, saying like, "Look, these books are coming back in, and we're going to do them again, and they got to all be excellent. You know, they can't be any less than our than our best because you know we're still, even though the you know the Heroes Reborn deal has now run its course and is done, we're still competing with them in the memory of that. We need to do books that read as well, uh, that sell as well, and are received as well or better, if if it is at all possible." Uh, and so, you know, we put a lot of effort and a lot of resource uh, into into building, into lining up those those heroes return titles uh, and the limited series that that, that launched them. Um, and so, you know, if, if uh, you know, if you felt like you know all, all those books came back and were were excellent, uh, it's really because you know that was you know that was the man. Everybody was keenly aware. You know, it doesn't matter that, 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 you know, Jim and Rob have left the building. We are still competing with them in a very one-to-one way. And we have to show that Marvel editorial and, and Marvel's creators can compete on the same level with them. Um, and that was a driving principle, you know, all the way through that launch. Mm-hmm. Now, if we flip forward like four or five years and now we have the the uh, the surge in popularity and the beginning of the the ultimate line, which and then kind of the the rise and fall of the ultimate line in terms of popularity. What was it like to be working at Marvel, working on the kind of the core Marvel Universe books, when suddenly the new and shiny Ultimate books seem to be getting all the press, seem to be getting all the attention, but you guys are still putting together amazing books at their you know in their kind of the regular Marvel Universe. Um, you know, it was you know uh, on the one hand it was weird because you you know uh, obviously you know the Ultimate line. Uh, you know, was 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 Bill Jemis's brainchild, uh, and and uh, you know he he was he was very involved with it, um, as was as was Joe, uh, and so uh, you know and that you know in some ways it's a double-edged sword, but it basically meant that much like I was talking about earlier uh, with the Heroes Reborn books, those titles tended to get you know more resources, have better budgets. Uh, you know, my memory of it is. That you know, the ultimate books launched, you know, with with if not cheaper cover prices than the main Marvel books, they had a much better package for the price, better paper, better cover stocks. Um, in some cases, more pages than than a regular Marvel 
book. Like real effort was being put against those as like this is our marquee line. This is the the stuff that we we care about the the most right now. We're really invested in, and everything else is really here to help keep the line. All you can do in that situation is you know compete on the playing field, and it's not like no resources were being spent towards the Marvel universe. You know, at the same time that Brian and Mark Bagley were doing Ultimate Spider-Man, uh, JMS and John Romita Jr. were doing Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, and, and, and that's in no way, uh, you know, a step down in terms of, you know, your talent level or, or your, uh, uh, you know, your, you know, your, your importance to, to what's happening, um, you know. But, uh, you know, certainly it was, you know, it was a time where the, the existing Marvel Universe was seen as a little passe and, and there was you know, a feeling that that aggregation of history that follows us around was more of a, of a, of a problem and more of a deficit than a benefit. Uh, but these things ultimately tend to be relatively cyclical um, and ultimately the, the ultimate universe lasted long enough where it had, by the end of it, that same problem. Uh, yeah, it was it was it had been around long enough that it had uh, it's, its own uh, complicated and Byzantine history uh, that was difficult for a new person to, to pick up on again. Um, so so you know again at the time everybody wants to be the fair haired child that everybody loves, but uh, you know you can't all be that all the time. And you know what it means is you know the best thing you could do is you know put your head down and and do your best work and 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 compete. You know, I compete with everybody else in the industry every Wednesday on those racks, mm. you know, based on what I, I put out, what I edit, and what everybody else does. And some weeks I do pretty good, and other weeks I get blasted off the racks by people who just have more going on. You know, whether those are other Marvel books or other competitors' books, uh, you know, that's the thing. And then the next week I get to do it again, and they get to do it again. Uh, and just because they had a good week last week doesn't mean that they're going to do it again next week. And hopefully, if I see what they've done and I'm able to, you know, adapt, adopt, and improve on it, you know, as we go, any advantage that they that they have, you know, I'll be able to incorporate in what we're doing a little bit and and eke back some of that ground and some of that territory. Mm-hmm. Now, over the course of your you know tenure with Marvel, you've obviously been worked under a lot of different editors in chief. How would you characterize the company under the different editors-in-chief? I'm not looking for any dirt on anyone. I'm just curious about how you would kind of segment <laughs> what it was like to work under the different ones and, you know, the differences, you know, positive-wise. So, I mean, I mean, honestly, so much of it has less to do with the editor-in-chiefs than the eras in which they, they served. Mm-hmm. I came in under Tom DeFalco, uh, and Tom was the editor-in-chief for me from, like, 1989 to about 1994, um, you know, and and you know, Tom oversaw the period of Marvel's you know kind of growth and stability. Uh, you know, immediately in the years before that, um, at the very end of Jim Shooter's uh, tenure at, at Marvel, there was a lot of contention between Jim and the editors on staff. He was not getting along well with his staff. Uh, he was having a lot of problems there, and so you know, with him having left and Tom now being being there, that sort of stabilized, and so. You know, it was a period of aggressive growth. Um, you know, Tom, like everybody, every editor-in-chief has an aesthetic. Tom had a certain type of comic that he liked, uh, and so that tended to be – that tended to shift the barometer in the direction of that sort of comic because that was more often than not the kind of comic that, 
you know, he would green light and, and, and approve. Uh, it's not like it was it was a, a narrow uh, ban necessarily, but you know, there's a there's an aesthetic there. Um, uh, so so you know, for most of Tom's era, though, uh, you know, a I was you know young. I was an assistant editor and and a, an associate editor, um, so I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't necessarily have the experience to understand and appreciate all of that time, and it seemed as you know. As, as tumultuous and contentious as any job you were going to have. But in, in a very real way, it was very safe and secure. It was many years of, of constant growth until finally the bubble burst and everything went, went uh, pear-shaped. Um, so then after that, there's the one year that's the five editor-in-chief. So that was only a year. Uh, and that's, you know, during that year, you know, Bob Budiansky was the person I, I worked for, uh, and Bob had, had uh, you know, been my boss and I had worked hand in hand with him all during the the Tom DeFalco era, so that was a very comfortable thing for me. Uh, you know, even though I was not you know in the heart of Amazing Spider-Man, I was around all the edges. I got to do a bunch of stuff. Uh, I got to develop. I also, in the course of that year, um, you know, by by fluke and circumstance, uh, ended up doing projects that were overseen by three of the other editor-in-chiefs. So I worked on the Marvel Universe Handbook with Mark Grinwald. Uh, I oversaw or, or, or helped package uh, a toy tie-in book called Skeleton Warriors under Carl Potts. Uh, and I did Scroll Kill Crew, which is uh, the book that Grant Morrison and Mark uh, Miller uh, had pitched and that Tom DeFalco had greenlit. Um, uh, I ended up doing that under Marvel Edge with Bobby Chase. Uh, and so... Uh, I got a bit of a smattering of experience with everybody, uh, which was which was useful. Um, after that uh, was was you know Bob Harris. Bob became the sole editor in chief by the time we got into 1996, and this was the era of bankruptcy and the era of outsourcing books that you were talking about before, and ultimately the era in those books those books coming back. And really, that was the era that was that was uh, uh, you know, defined most by the fact that it was so chaotic uh, and, and so catastrophic that literally we would have a different president at Marvel like every other week, it seemed like. Uh, and so the directives and marching orders would constantly be shifting. The ground was not very stable under your feet. Uh, and I feel like, uh, in general, Bob does not get a, a very fair shake historically for his period as editor-in-chief, uh, in large part because people either want to pillory him for what he did or what he didn't do with, with X-Men books that he had directly edited before that. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, Bob oversaw uh, the company through, uh, you know, most tumultuous periods in its entire history and, you know, kept us being able to put out comics and kept us being able to, you know, keep the light on and be profitable and, and, and maintain a thing uh, all the way, all the way through all the chapter 11 process uh, and everything that was there. Hmm. Um, Joe coming in uh, was, uh, you know, again, it was a sea change. Um, again, as much as anything else, uh, you know, because Joe's aesthetic is different. Uh, and Joe really also learned how to be editor-in-chief on the job uh, in, in a real way. I kind of feel like there's there are at least two different periods of Joe as editor-in-chief, if not maybe three. Um, uh, but, but through all of that, 
um, you know, the first the first couple of years uh, were really exciting because uh, you know there was a real drive to push the boundaries and to experiment and, and to, to expand the range of what a Marvel comic could be and what kind of art styles would be appropriate and what kind of subject matter we would do. You know, we left the comics code behind. Uh, we started doing you know, imprints like the Max imprint to do harder edged material. Um, you know, we tried to, we started to bring in other, other talent that up to that point would be, uh, you know, uh, you know, considered uh, risky or inappropriate by a lot of people, people to be doing a Marvel book. Um, you know, back in 1996, uh, on *Untold Tales of Spider-Man*, you know, Kurt Busiek and myself got Mike, Mike Allred to, to pencil that Spider-Man annual. It's a great annual, and it was really a breath of fresh air in 1996 because, you know, nobody like Mike had drawn a Marvel comic before. Um, you know, when Joe came in, Mike Allred drew X-Force. <laughs> you know, he just, he was just the artist on X-Force um, because Joe didn't have the same, you know, the same set of biases and the same set of, of preconditions that, you know, a lot of his predecessors had in terms of, you know, how to define what a Marvel comic was. He just had what he liked or what he thought was a good idea. And ultimately some of those ideas worked out and some of them didn't. And that's the learning process that he had, uh, you know, uh, doing that. Um, but it was yeah, at, at the start. It was the it was the Wild West. It was very chaotic. Um, there was a lot of tension and a lot of stress because of some personality stuff. But uh, you know, generally, it was good. Um, you know, that kind of gave way uh, to Axel being the IC. Uh, and again, there's a slight shift in aesthetic there um, because Axel certainly has you know a kind of a, a type of comic that he likes. Um, and it's not like it's so markedly different from a Joe or so markedly different from a Bob, but it's just it's a slightly different emphasis, like like everybody has. Uh, you know, those were most of the days of uh, you know uh, you know uh, the, you know post Disney acquisition, uh, and so you know a, a lot of doors were opening up to us. Obviously, the Marvel films were were doing great business. Uh, and that meant that people were becoming more and more aware of who the Marvel characters were and allowing us to, to go forward with a lot of material. And again, you know, Axel tended to be very uh, open to uh, experimentation in terms of the kinds of things that we would do and the kind of creators that, that we would bring in. Not in exactly the same way as Joe because his aesthetic was different than Joe's, but, but uh, you know, in, in that same sort of fashion. Um, and you know now it's uh, you know it's CB CB Sabolsky, uh, and CB is uh, you know a true blue uh, comic fan. He's been up in and around Marvel for uh, you know close to twenty years now. I forget exactly how close we actually are to that. Um, you know he's always had a fantastic eye for talent. That's kind of how he came into the into the business. Was was uh, as sort of a talent recruiter and, and, and uh, talent relations person. Um, uh, you know, he's a great cheerleader for Marvel. He's a great advocate for, for what we do. Um, you know, he's a good friend of mine. So I, I uh, you know, I want to be careful of not, you know, praising him too much. <laughs> also, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still on pretty, uh, pretty good terms with Joe. So I don't want to praise CB too much. So Joe feels like I'm not giving him enough. Um, <laughs> I still like Axel, so I don't want Axel to feel like he was, was left out, you know. 
and Bob is still over there at DC. So like, you know, everybody's still Tom DeFalco is still walking around. I can't say anything bad about any of these people yet. <laughs> um, none of them are dead yet, but but you know, you call me back in a few years, maybe uh, maybe there'll be some stories. But generally speaking, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, the, the the differences had more to do with what the problems were in a particular year or era, and and uh, you know, the aesthetic of the person who ultimately has to make the ultimate decision as to what we what we we do and what we don't do. Okay. Now, I have some quick uh, lightning round questions, and then we'll let you get back to your evening. Um, these come from a, a listener. Uh, first question was, why have you stuck with Marvel Comics so long, and why no DC work? Um, I, I've stuck with Marvel Comics so long because they pay me every week, and I like to get the money, and it makes it a lot easier to, to still have this, this house than, <laughs> and this uh, headset that I'm speaking to you on. And why no DC work? Um, it's because, you know, other than one one instance, they never really offered it to me. So, uh, you know, uh, I always thought at a certain point, you know, earlier on in my career, I sort of figured, you know, I'd end up doing the same kind of trajectory that a lot of guys did. I'd do about 20 years at Marvel, and then I'd end up doing 20 years at DC, or something like that. Um, you know, what I think of as, you know, the Mike Carlin trajectory or the Denny O'Neill trajectory or the Archie Goodwin trajectory. Uh, and that's just not how it, how it, you know, played out. Um, you know, there was one period where, where I talked with people from DC, uh, you know, after we had done a crossover to Mike Carlin, it was very, uh, uh, enthusiastic about getting me over at a certain point. And I took a lunch with him and Paul Levitz. Uh, but this was, around 1997, 1998, and I had just, I had just launched Thor, and I had Avengers and Thunderbolts, and I think Hulk at that point, uh, and they were saying, well, you know, you come over here, and, you know, we'll make you an associate editor, because, you know, their process at that time was, you know, they want to get somebody in, and, you know, build them up, and make sure that they've got, you know, the chops to do whatever they were going to do, and I sort of thought to myself, I'm editing three or four books that are, that are, you know, routinely clobbering most of what you guys are putting out and you want me to take a title cut to come over, I, I can't see it. I just can't do it. Um, you know, I like I like DC. I, I like the characters. I like the people for the most part. Um, you know, and honestly, it would have been uh, quite a change had I ever gone over there uh, because, you know, I would have had to make the decision as to whether or not I was going to move to the West Coast. Mm. Uh, and, and uh, you know, so I, this call could be coming from California right now <laughs> under different circumstances. Um, you know, and at other points where, you know, there were certainly moments in my Marvel career where I was ready to, I was ready to pack it in and call it a day. Uh, at those times, either there were no openings at, at DC or the people at DC just were not interested in, in me. Um, which is fair. There's no reason why they they, they should. Um, so it just it just didn't work out. It all goes back. You know, I, I, I have a I have a, a bit that I that I do, and I've done it for many years. Um, you know, when I talk about how I got into the business and how I got into the business was I was an illustration major at the University of Delaware, and in your senior year as an illustration major, you had to serve an internship related to the, the field of illustration in some way, shape, or form. And so I sent letters of, of inquiry to Marvel and DC and all the companies that existed in those days you know, about an internship program. And you know, Marvel sent me a reply back with the information, and DC never did. 
Uh, and so I ended up interning at Marvel, and I ended up at Marvel. Uh, and that's and that's really that's really it. It's luck of the draw. <laughs> it could just as easily have been DC. Uh, and and you know, would anything have been different? No more so than if Mark Greenwald had lived at Marvel. You know, I don't for a second believe that I could have changed the trajectory of of DC's fortunes in a in a major way. Uh, at any point being over there again maybe in a minor way maybe there'd be some good doom patrol comics or or there'd be a really excellent metamorpho run that we talk about or something but but i don't think uh you know it's not, i think that they suddenly wouldn't be in california if i if i'd been over there or something um you know that there's there's you know the the forces that that uh, you know uh were brought to bear on DC, just like the forces that have have guided Marvel all these years, are, are bigger than any one rank and file person. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, next question: You need a cover artist for an Avengers cover to meet a short deadline, and you can choose either Gil Kane, John Romita, or John Buscema. Who are you inclined to pick, and why? It's an Avengers cover, so I go with John Buscema because John. You know, has a long history uh, with the Avengers. He's going to know the characters. He's also going to be able to do that in his sleep. Um, it's not <laughs> like you know either John Romita or Gil Kane couldn't. Um, you know, the, all three of them, uh, you know, were great in some ways. Probably Gil and and Romita are better cover artists pound for pound than John Buscema is. But John's got such a strong association with the characters and the title. My instinct would be naturally to to, to, to go with him. Okay. Um, there are several famous editors within comic book history, such as J. Jonah Jameson, Robbie Robertson, Perry White, and Hank O'Hare. Uh, which editor are you most like? <laughs> which fictitious editor am I most like? Uh, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna answer out of left field, just because it's the first thing that that that, that comes to mind. I am most, perhaps most like Stan Bragg. Stan Bragg, the the uh, the editor who gave uh, from from Angel and the Ape, uh, uh, who, would, who would who would give the ape his uh, his comic book assignments uh, and would sign his name all over everything, uh, you know, to make sure that you knew he was he was working on it. That's that, there you go. That's my pick, Stan Bragg. <laughs> Um, now this question is one of the ones that maybe you can't answer, but uh, he was, he wanted to know what's up with the Ultraverse characters. Um, the Ultraverse characters, the the short answer answer is they're kind of in frozen in limbo, uh, and and in fact I can't even really talk about it because there are non disclosure agreements involved. Um, all I can tell you is you know there's there's stuff relating to the 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 you know the contracts and the deals and crap involving those characters that you know keep us from effectively being able to do anything with them. Um, you know, at some future date, if we're ever able to clear that up, I'm sure we'd love to do something with them. There've been a couple of times over the years when we've thought, man, maybe we can get this to work, and different people have pitched ideas or been really enthusiastic, and it's never happened. Uh, and I don't know if it ever if it ever will. Um, uh, but uh, I can't really tell you more than that. That's okay. Uh, I guess the last question is that you helped to develop or redevelop the, the Marvel Masterworks program in the 90s. Could you describe how restoration methods have changed during your career? Um, I don't know that I can in that 
I've been so divorced from it <laughs> for the last 10 or 15 years. You know, I, I haven't actually worked on a Marvel Masterworks in, in two decades. I've, I've read a lot of them. Uh, you know, they, people have consulted with me and asked me questions about, you know, uh, things, uh, you know, related to them. But I haven't put them together, uh, you know, in that time. I guess the thing that's really, you know, improved is, uh, you know, the, the, the ability to, 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 to take a printed book and reproduce from it. Whether that means, you know, recreating black and white line work that you can then recolor or whether that means actually scanning and color correcting an actual printed book to the point where it looks like a new uh, thing. Um, you know, the, 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 each, each new iteration of the masterworks tends to look better than the ones before them. Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, as more materials are found, as more original art is sourced, uh, and as the reproduction technology gets better, um, the books consequently you know, are improved, which is why I end up with so many copies of these things around the, the house. Um, <laughs> because there's always some, some new version where I go, oh, that looks really good. I should hang on to that. Um, you know, it's not like I need another copy of the story from Fantastic Four number one, but this one looks really good. So I'll, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me grab onto that. Um, you know, as it is, like the you know Corey Settlemeyer has been uh, you know overseeing most of the work on our masterworks for a lot of years. Uh, you know, he and the guys he works with do a great job with it. Uh, and I literally, you know, I, I I don't even know the entirety of the process that they go through. I can't even speak to it anymore um, because I, it just it doesn't happen in my in my eyesight. Hmm. It's magic. They do it with pixie dust. <laughs> Well, his follow-up question was whether or not Corey was a real person or a miracle from heaven, so. <laughs> well, uh, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe a little of both. Uh, maybe a little of both. Um, you know, it is, it is pretty remarkable that we're coming up on, we're not quite there, but we're getting close to 300 volumes of, of that thing. Um, you know, and I can remember when, you know, the last volume was 27. And we were done. So, so that's a pretty good run, uh, you know. Uh, and, and and you know, we're at the point. Uh, you know, one of the last books to come out, I guess, before the the shutdown, um, was the you know Dazzler Masterworks, which which if nothing else proves that that we have we have reached the bottom of the barrel, boy. <laughs> the fact that there's a, a hardcover Marvel Masterworks volume of of Dazzler, oh, we are we are so there. <laughs> We've reprinted everything uh, uh, yeah, at, at that point. No, no human being alive in 1981 would ever believe you if you showed up at a time machine with a copy of that book. Nobody. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. But you know, it's great, and for people that for people that that, that, that love it, there it, there it is. There's a whole collection of that. That's great. That so uh, again, thank you so much for spending so much of your time. Before we do let you go, assuming eventually we get comics again, what are you most excited coming out of your office soon? That big thing that we're we're, we're right on the cusp of is is Empire, our our big Avengers Fantastic Four uh, multi title, uh, you know, super brouhaha story, um, and uh, you know we're really excited for people to read it. So uh, one of these days soon, hopefully, uh, you'll. <laughs> get to um you know we're, we're in the middle of it at this point but it's right on the horizon for for all of you so look forward to that and you know we look forward to seeing what you think 
Excellent. Well, again, thank you so much, Tom, for uh, coming back on the show and for spending so much time with us today. My pleasure. Have a, have a good evening. Stay safe. Uh, wash your hands.